And you can go ahead and have a seat. And as you do, if you want, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5, which is the passage I just read. That's where we're going to start out today, Galatians chapter 5. And uh, as you turn there, we are going to put a picture on the screen. And I want to apologize in advance for this picture because this is a horrible quality picture. And we've actually made it even worse because we've actually blurred the faces of the people in this picture to protect the innocent or in this place case, protect the guilty. But I want to put this picture on the screen because there's a backstory behind it. So this picture that you see right here, uh, as grainy as it is, this is actually a picture of my front porch, okay? And this picture was taken on Halloween of this past year, October 31st of this past year. And here's the backstory behind this picture. So like probably some of you in this room, uh, me and my family, we are not home on Halloween in order to pass out candy. We are either here at Family Fun Fest or we have cousins who live down in Newport and sometimes we go trick-or-treating with them. So we're not home to pass out candy. But I don't want to be a bad neighbor. I don't want to be known as the house in the neighborhood that you can't get candy from. And so every single year what I do is we leave out a bucket of candy on our front porch. And we have a sign that we hang on the front door. And on the sign I write something like, Happy Halloween, please take only one. And I write one in big, bold, capital letters. And you may think I'm stingy with that, but here's the reason I do that. Again, we want to be good neighbors. So we actually go out and we buy not the small candy bars, but we give away the full-size Snicker bars, okay? We give away the full-size Hershey car bars. <laughs> I get an applause for that, thank you. Uh, we give away the full-size candy bars on Halloween. So we wanna be a good neighbor. And I know, I know, I'm taking a huge risk by putting a box of, a, 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 you know, a bucket of full-size candy bars on my front porch. But I'll tell you what, over the last several Halloweens, I've actually been really impressed with my neighborhood. Because every year that we get home, and we've done this for, I think we've lived in our house for six years now, every year that we do home, get home, there's always some candy left. There's not a lot of candy left, but there's always some candy left. And based on years past, I've always estimated that we've probably, we live in an older neighborhood, and we've probably gotten maybe about 17, 18, 16, something like that, trick-or-treaters throughout the night. Okay, that's what I've, I've figured. Well, this past year, I found out what was really going on. And here's how I found out. Since last Halloween, since a year ago Halloween, we had one of those video doorbells installed. And that's what you're seeing a picture of right here. And we actually get an alert and it starts recording every single time that someone comes onto our front porch. And I was really excited about this. I was most excited about this, honestly, for Halloween. So I could actually see how many trick-or-treaters that we got. So this past Halloween, we're actually down in Newport. And uh, as I'm down in Newport, I'm eagerly anticipating all these notifications telling me how many trick-or-treaters that we get throughout the night. Well, do you know, do you know how many trick-or-treaters we got on Halloween night of this past year? How many people do you see in that picture? Okay, there's actually four. It's kind of hard to see, but there's actually four people in the picture. That's it. That's all the trick-or-treaters that we got this entire Halloween. And as I was down in Newport, I got a notification on my phone when, when these trick-or-treaters were there, and I'm actually able to watch in, in, in real time a video feed of my front porch. And as I'm watching these four trick-or-treaters there, I, I'm noticing something a little bit suspicious. They're kind of lingering over this bucket a little bit longer than they probably should, right? If they're just grabbing one candy bar. So I start to get a little bit suspicious. And so when we get home, you better believe the first thing I do is I jump out of the car, I let my wife get the kids out of the car, I jump out of the car, 
and I go straight to the front porch. And I'd actually counted how many candy bars I had put in that bucket. So I knew how, they, how many they took. So I counted how many they was left and therefore how many they took. And do you know, do you know how many candy bars these four thieves took between the four of them? <laughs> do you know how many? 17 candy bars. 17, these, these bandits here took 17 full-size candy bars between the four of them. And I'm beginning to realize that my nice neighborhood is not as nice as I thought it was. In fact, I think these are probably the only trick-or-treaters that we have gotten for the last several years. And I noticed something this past week I had never noticed before. What do you notice about these trick-or-treaters? Yeah, they're older, and I don't think they're even wearing costumes. I think they just drive up to my house just to steal my candy bars. So here's what I decided, okay? Next year, you will not see me at fun, Family Fun Fest. And next year, I am not trick-or-treating with my kids in Newport. No, next year, I'm staying home. And I don't know if you can see this, but there's actually a bush right next to my front porch. And I am hiding out in that bush, and I am giving these trick-or-treaters the scare of their life, and they're going to regret the day they ever stole from the pastor of disaster. They're going to find out how I got that name. So that's what I'm doing next year. No, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm just calling the police next year, okay? That's it. That's it. No, listen, listen, listen. Uh, I'm just having a little fun with you. I would never do that. This is a, at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. It's a $15 box of candy, and I think I got it on sale, okay? So it's not a big of a deal. But here's why I share you this story. There is a serious side to it. Here's why I show you this story. I have to believe, men and women, I have to believe that these four trick-or-treaters here, I have to believe that they knew in some way, they knew that, that what they were doing was wrong, right? I mean, they knew that they were taking advantage of the fact that the owner of this house was not there. And yet, even though they knew that what they were doing, were doing was wrong, they did it anyway. And that, to me, shows a few different things, but one of the things it shows me is it shows me a lack, at least in this moment, it shows me a lack of what we're talking about here today. It shows me a lack, ultimately, of self-control. In this particular moment, these trick-or-treaters, they lacked self-control. And that's exactly what we're talking about here today. Yes, you heard me right, men and women. Here we are the weekend after Thanksgiving. Our stomachs are full, our belts are a little bit looser. Here we are the weekend after Black Friday, right? And our wallets are a little bit emptier. And what have we chosen to talk about at French Church this weekend? We have chosen to talk about self-control of all things. And I know some of you are thinking, this is a cruel trick, right? Only the pastor of disaster would talk about self-control the weekend after Thanksgiving. But in my defense, let me say a couple of things. First of all, would you rather have a message on self-control the weekend after Thanksgiving or the weekend before Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah, this past Thursday was no treat for me knowing I was teaching on this message. So trust me, we spared you by teaching it after Thanksgiving. The second thing I want to say is this, and this is serious. You know what? This is a really important subject. It is. And just like with kindness a couple of weeks ago, just like with joy this past week, I really believe that self-control these days is something that is in short supply in the United States. I really do. Which means that when we take it seriously and when we practice it the way that the Bible tells us to practice it, it is something that causes us to stand out. And believe it or not, we can actually, I believe, be a witness for Jesus, lead other people to Christ through our self-control. So as difficult as this message is, and it is difficult, this topic is a difficult topic, 
it is a very important one. So today we're talking about self-control. And like we did with kindness a couple of weeks ago, let's start first with a definition, okay? Today in today's message, I'm going to answer, just to give you an outline ahead of time, I'm going to answer three questions about self-control. Those questions are, what is it? We won't spend very long on this one. We'll spend the most amount of time on the second question, why is it important? And then we'll answer, how do we get it? And we're going to begin first with, what is it? What is self-control? In my studies, I came across this definition. Another pastor, Alistair Begg, he defined it as the following. He said, self-control is the spirit-enabled ability to avoid excesses and to stay within God-given boundaries. And I really like that definition. Self-control is the spirit-enabled ability to avoid excesses and to stay within God-given boundaries. The Greek word translated self-control in our Bible is the Greek word egratia, egratia. And egratia is actually two Greek words put together. And literally translated, egratia means inner strength or inner power. Inner strength or inner power. And that's, that's what self-control is. As I've been thinking about self-control over the past week, I realize that self-control, it begins first in the mind, doesn't it? You have to know what the God-given boundaries are. You have to know when to say stop. You have to know when to say no. You have to know what excesses are. You have to know when to say this is wrong. And so it starts in the mind, but I believe self-control sort of ultimately moves to the gut. It moves to the stomach. Once you know what the boundaries are, you have to actually carry through with it. You have to stay within them. You have to have the inner strength and the inner power to stay within it. And that's what self-control is. Self-control is a spirit-enabled ability to avoid excesses and to stay within God-given boundaries. So that's what it is. Now, why is it important? Why is self-control so important? Well, let me give you the principle here first, and then I'm going to spend sort of a lot of time unpacking it. But the principle is this. Self-control is important because self-control is ultimately a question of power. It's ultimately a question of power. Who or what are we going to allow to have control over our lives? Who or what are we going to allow to have control over our lives? As you can imagine, I have been doing a lot of thinking about self-control over the past couple of weeks. And as I have thought about my own struggles with self-control in areas, and probably like many of us in this room, I have from time to time, I do from time to time, struggle with self-control. My areas may be different than yours, but I still struggle with it. And as I have thought about my own struggles with self-control, here's what I realize. For me, it's not so much that I don't know when to say no. It's not so much that I don't know when to say stop. It's not so much that I don't know what the God-given boundaries are. I've grown up in the church. I, for the most part, I think I know what the God-given boundaries are. That's not where I struggle with self-control. Where I struggle with self-control is with that inner strength, that inner will. I know what is right. I know what is best. But sometimes I find it really difficult to actually do that. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think probably if a lot of us examine our struggles with self-control, it's not that we don't know what is right, like those trick-or-treaters. We know what we're doing is wrong in some instances, but we seem to do it anyway. So why do we do that? Why is it so difficult at times to practice self-control? Well, that's the reason I wanted to bring you to this passage in Galatians chapter 5. We're not going to go through this whole passage, but the reason I wanted to read it ahead of time is because I think this passage explains as well as any other passage in the Bible why self-control sometimes is so difficult. 
And the key verse for me is what Paul says in verse 17 of Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read that again, but I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to read it in a slightly different translation because I think it makes it a little bit clear. Here's Galatians chapter 5 verse 17 in the New Living Translation of the Bible. We'll put it on the screen, and this is what Paul writes. He says, The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. And listen to what Paul says next. He says, these two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. And what is Paul doing here? Well, what Paul is doing here is he is describing the Christian experience. He is describing the Christian life. For anybody, any of us in this room who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he is describing what life is like after we become a Christian. And what Paul is telling us is that within every single one of us in this room, there is a battle that is going on. There is a war that is going on. On one side of this war, what we have, what the New Living Translation calls the sinful nature. The actual little Greek word is the Greek word flesh. And the flesh in the Bible, it refers to the part of us that existed even before we become a Christian that still remains after we become a Christian. And this is the part of us that still wants to do what is wrong. This is the part of us that still wants to do what is bad for us. This is the part of us that wants to go against God. And this does not get taken away from us when we become a Christian. It's still a part of us. And so on one side, we have that. But on the other side, we're told that when we we become a Christian, we get something else, or better said, we get someone else. And that is that we we get the Holy Spirit. We get God's Holy Spirit within us. And the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, he gives us new desires. He gives us new impulses. He, He wants us to do what God wants us to do. And what Paul tells us in verse 17 here is that these two forces, these two sides are actually constantly fighting each other. Within every single one of us, there is, there is almost like a civil war that is going on. And the end result of this civil war is what Paul says at the end of this verse when he says, you are not free to carry out your good intentions. In other words, there are going to be times in this life when we know what is right and we know what is best. We know when to say no. We know when to say stop. And deep down, we actually want to do that. But we're going to find it difficult to do that. And that's as a result of this battle that is going on within us. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that is probably one of the most frustrating times in the Christian life. When you actually know what is right, and you know what is best, you know what self-control looks like, but even still, you struggle to carry it out. When, for example, you don't want to lash out in anger anymore. You know it doesn't accomplish what you think it will accomplish, and you really want to gain self-control over your anger, but you find yourself in a heated argument, and it's like before you even know it, you just lash out in anger. It's frustrating when that happens. It's frustrating when, for example, you don't want to turn to alcohol anymore. You don't want to turn to prescription drugs anymore. And maybe even one night you're driving home and you make a resolution to yourself, tonight I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do that. And then you get home and you start to get a little bit down and before you even realize it, you're reaching for the liquor cabinet. You're reaching for the medicine cabinet. That's frustrating when that happens. 
It's frustrating when you don't want to lie to your parents anymore, when you don't want to cheat on an exam anymore, but you get in the heat of the moment, and even though you know it's not right and you don't want to do it, you just, you just seem to find yourself doing it. What is going on in those moments? Paul tells us. There is this battle, there is this war that is going on within us. So that, as Paul says, we're not free to carry out our good intentions. And what I want to make clear to all of us today, in fact, I'm going to throw a lot at you in this message. It was difficult to sort of pare this down. But, but, but in all that I throw out to you in this message, probably the most important thing I'm going to say is this. As difficult as this battle is, as difficult as this war is sometimes, it is so important, men and women, that we engage in it. It is so important that we fight the flesh and we fight to gain self-control in these moments. And the reason why it's so important is the Bible makes it clear that the more that we give in to this fleshly side of us, the more that we give in to this sinful side of us, the more it's going to begin to control us and not the other way around. And this is made clear in a few places in the Bible, but perhaps the one that stands out the most to me is in 1 Corinthians 6. And you can turn there in your Bibles if you want. 1 Corinthians is just to the left of Galatians. So if you turn to the left, you'll hit 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And 1 Corinthians is a letter that is written by the Apostle Paul, same person who wrote Galatians. And he's writing to a church. He's writing to a church in the first century city of Corinth. And he's writing to a church that, to put it simply, this church is struggling with self-control. They are doing things that they absolutely know is wrong. They're doing things that they absolutely know God prohibits. And yet, even though they are doing these things that they know are wrong, they're excusing their behavior. And one of the ways that they're excusing their behavior is they're pointing to the cross. And they're saying, well, Jesus died on the cross. And because Jesus died on the cross, we're forgiven of everything that we do, past, present, and future. And therefore, since we're forgiven, we can do whatever we want. And in fact, this church, it seems, had actually adopted a slogan to express this sort of behavior. And they even taught this probably on their church services. And the slogan is this, it's I have a right to do anything. I have the right to do anything because I'm forgiven of whatever sin I commit in this life. Therefore, I have the right to do whatever I want. I have the right to do anything. Well, one day, the Apostle Paul, who actually founded this church in Corinth, he catches wind of this statement. And he's in another city, but he hears about this slogan, and he decides to write the letter of 1 Corinthians in part to challenge this slogan. And look at how he challenges it. Verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He begins first by quoting their slogan. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say. So he says, I've heard your slogan. I have the right to do anything. But then he challenges it with this. He says, but not everything is beneficial. And that's sort of self-explanatory. What Paul is saying here is, yeah, you're forgiven for whatever you do, but you realize that not everything's good for you. You realize not everything's best for you. And then he challenges the statement again. Once again, he quotes their slogan. He says, I have the right to do anything. But then he says this. Look at what he says next. He says, but I will not be mastered by anything. But I will not be mastered by anything. Now, what is Paul saying there? Well, what Paul is picking up on there is something that we find throughout the Bible. And the simplest way that I can think to explain it is this. It's that the more that we say yes to sin now, the more that we give in to this fleshly side of us now, the more that we fail to practice self-control now, the harder it gets to practice it in the future. 
The more that we say yes to a particular sin in our life now, the harder it becomes to say no to it in the future. And we can actually get to a place in this life where we have said yes to sin so much in our life that we become in this life not self-controlled, but we become sin-controlled. And we can become, in a sense, mastered by our bad decisions, mastered by our bad choices. This is, at the end of the day, this is what addiction is, isn't it? And we've all probably seen examples of this. I remember a couple of years ago reading a really uh, interesting article in, I think it was the Atlantic Magazine, which is not a a Christian magazine, but they had a fascinating article on uh, gambling addiction. And in this article, they profiled a few people who were addicted to gambling, and there was one guy who was a self-admitted gambling addict. And he said in this article, he said, I don't even like to gamble anymore. So it's destroyed my life. I don't like it. But there are times when it's just like I can't help myself. And he says, I'll find myself times driving in a car, and it's like before I know it, I'm at a blackjack table in a casino. And it's like I don't know what has happened. Well, what is going on in those moments? Well, psychology may have their answer to it, but the Bible's answer to it is that this man is not self-controlled. He's gambling controlled. He has given his life over to to gambling. He has ceded control of his life over to gambling. He is now mastered by gambling. And, And that's the point that Paul is making here. Yeah, Corinthians, yeah, in a sense, you have a right to do whatever you want. You're forgiven for your sins, that's for sure. But but do you really want to be mastered by your bad choices in this life? And understand, understand, this isn't just limited to to things that the Bible obviously prohibits. Even good things, even good things when done to the extreme can begin to master us in bad ways. This is the observation C.S. Lewis makes in his very classic work, The Screwtape Letters. Have you ever read The Screwtape Letters before? Great book. And in that book, C.S. Lewis pretends to be like a senior demon instructing a younger demon on how to lead Christians away from God and the faith. And at one point, the senior demon says to the younger demon something like this, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, listen, our goal as demons is not just to get Christians to do obviously bad things. He says, our goal as demons is also to get Christians to take the good things that God has created and to go overboard with them. And I think C.S. Lewis is right in that. That one of the things that the enemy does is he tries to get us to take the good things that God has created and to go to the extreme, because we can be mastered by those things as well. If you've ever heard a sermon on on self-control before, this is where the pastor usually talks about food, and how food can be dangerous, how food can begin to master us. But you know what? The same thing can happen with dieting and exercise. This is probably very hard for you to believe now, but when I was in college, I got obsessed with going to the gym. I got obsessed with working out. It started out innocently enough. I wanted to get in better shape. But as often the case with these things, I started to like the results that I saw, and then it was just sort of off to the races. And I got to a place where I began to experience anxiety if I couldn't find a way to get a workout in that day. My whole day became about organizing it around, when can I go to the gym? I mean, I remember at one point, I went to the gym at like 12.30 at night just to get a workout in. And let me ask you a question. Who was in control of my life at that time? I wasn't self-controlled. I was gym controlled. I was exercise controlled. And this can happen with practically anything. Work is a good thing. Work done in the extreme, you become a workaholic. And you can't say no to it. 
Rest is a good thing. Rest done in the extreme, and you become what the Bible calls a slugger. You don't get anything accomplished. Uh, I think of this past Friday. I think Black Friday is a perfect example of this. Listen, there is nothing wrong, I don't think, in buying a new TV if you actually need a new TV. But but I'm convinced that 90% of the people who buy a new TV on Black Friday, they don't need a new TV. They're buying it, honestly, because we lack self-control. They're buying it just to buy it. And stores know this, and they exploit this within us. In fact, even this past Wednesday, I got my wife's permission to share this story. Even this past Wednesday, I was getting ready for work, and my wife said, hey, do you want a French press? And at the time, I didn't know what a French press was. I couldn't remember what it was. I thought it was something to do your hair or something like that. And I said, what's a French press? And she reminded me it's something to make coffee. And I said, oh, okay, I know what it is. I like coffee, but I will never use a French press. And so I said, no, I don't want one. I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, I was reading the Black Friday ad, and it's only 10 bucks at Target, so I was thinking about picking one up. You guys, my wife doesn't even drink coffee, okay? (laughs) But here she was seeing this deal, and she was taken away by it. And you know what? So was I. All of a sudden, I was thinking, maybe I do need a French press. Right? Maybe I'll like it, and then I'll kick myself for not getting the $10 deal, and probably many of us can relate to that. You see, because of our sinfulness, because of our fallen nature, there is just something inside of us that just wants to take things to the extreme. In fact, it really dovetails with Matthew's talk on contentment last week. We're always feeling discontented in this life, but we're always believing that we're just one more thing, whatever it is, away from contentment. But if we're not careful, these things can begin to control us. And that's why this is so important. In fact, to give you a sense of how important this is, Friday night, within the span of one hour, I got two invites to go to the USC Notre Dame game last night. And I turned both of them down because I said, this message is so important, I need to be there for all three services this weekend. Actually, that's not entirely true. I also turned it down because my boss said I'd be fired if I didn't show up this weekend. So who knows the real reason why I'm here? But nevertheless, this is a very important message, okay? And as I said at the end of the day, it comes down to a question of power. Who or what are we going to allow to have power over our life? And what I hope you're realizing, what I hope you're realizing is that actually self-control, it's misnamed. It's not self-controlled, it's, it's spirit-controlled. It's spirit-controlled. You see, because if, if, if all that we have within us is the flesh and the spirit, and we're told to deny the, the, the flesh within us, th- then what does that leave? It leaves the spirit. And so to be self-controlled is actually to be spirit-controlled, to completely cede control of our life over to God, over to the Holy Spirit. So let's say you're listening to this right now. And you're saying, okay, Chris, you're reading my mail. I was reading my own mail this past week. And you're realizing there is an area of my life where I am not practicing self-control, and I need to practice self-control. How do I do that? Well, I have great news for you. I do believe that God allows us to gain self-control in our life. I do believe that we can get to a place where we do experience self-control, where we are controlled by the Spirit. And that's what I want to turn to next. How do we practice self-control? There are two things that we need to do. The first thing that we need to do is this. We need to ask for the help that God provides. We need to start out by asking for the help that God provides. You're already in 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. Amazing promise in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. Probably familiar to many of us, but still amazing. Here Paul is talking to a church that is struggling with self-control still. 
And this is what he writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. He says, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And what is Paul saying here? Well, in short, what Paul is saying is that God wants us to practice self-control. God wants us to practice self-control. He wants us to be spirit-controlled more than even we do. And God knows our weaknesses. He knows how tough it can be to fight the flesh sometimes. And so God has made a promise to us. And the promise is that he will never put us in a situation where sin is our only option. God will never put us in a situation where a lack of self-control is our only option. But in every situation that we are in, God provides a way out. He provides it so that we can practice self-control. And so what does that mean to me? That means to me this. If you recognize that there is an area of your life where you are not practicing self-control. And if you're struggling to find one, it may mean that you don't have any, but one place to look is look to the things you turn to when you're down, stressed, or anxious. That's usually where where I find I lack self-control. But if you find yourself that there's a place where you're lacking self-control, the first thing to do is get down on your knees and ask for God's help. Ask for God to help you. And then once you've done that, when you find yourself in situations when you're tempted, Pray to God and ask for God to show you the way out. That's the first step. We need to ask for the help that God provides. And then the second step is this. We need to acknowledge the responsibility that we have. We need to acknowledge the responsibility that we have. And this is just my fancy way of saying that if we want to practice self-control in this life, there is absolutely no way around it. If we want to practice self-control, we have to learn. We have to learn to just say no. We have to learn to just say no. We have to learn to say no to our impulses. We have to learn to say no to our flesh. We have to learn to say no to those things where we're tempted to go out of control with. We have to learn to just say no. And I know some of you may look at that and say, Chris, this is too ordinary, right? I thought we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. You could give this at a secular psychology conference. I mean, isn't this what Nancy Reagan said in the 1980s, right? And maybe I could, but you know what? There is wisdom in this. There is. This is biblical. You know, I really think one of the biggest misunderstandings today, truly in the Christian faith, is regarding the fruit of the Spirit and how it's produced in our life. And I think people hear fruit of the Spirit and they think that all we need to do is just let go and let God. If we just become super spiritual, all of a sudden we're going to produce this fruit. But that's not true. Remember how Paul described the Christian life in Galatians 5. He described it as a battle. He described it as a war. Now, I believe God has won this war for us. And I believe he gives us the Holy Spirit to fight every single step of the war. But that doesn't mean that there is an effort required on our part. We still have to fight ourselves. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we still have to fight ourselves, which means that we have to learn to say no. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 12. We'll put these verses on the screen. One of the passages in the Bible that talks about self-control. Paul says this. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, meaning God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What is Paul saying in that verse? He's saying the secret to self-control is actually not a secret. Instead, when we find ourselves in situations where we're tempted to go overboard, We have to learn to say no. I could lash out in anger in this moment, but no, I'm not going to. I could turn to alcohol. I could turn to to, to prescription painkillers in this moment, but no, I'm not going to. I could cheat on this test. I could lie to my parents, but no, I'm not going to. 
Now, we're not alone in saying no. God is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. But even still, it takes us denying the flesh. And I want to let you know, men and women, that something that can really help us in this battle is enlisting other people to come alongside us. You know, the more that you have said yes to something in your life, the harder that thing is going to be the break. Now, I believe that God can break it. Absolutely, I believe that. And God gives us the help to say no in those situations. But I believe part of the help that God gives us is other people to come alongside us, other Christians to help us. And that's why letting your life group, that's why letting your men's group, your women's group in on your battle is so helpful. And if you don't have a group of people that that you can talk to about that, we want to help you. And we'll put a a website on the screen, friends.church/care. And if you're really struggling in an area, you can go to that website and you can find some resources that that you can be connected with to help you regain self-control in your life. But it is a battle. It is. And just so you know, because it is a battle, we will lose sometimes. We will fail sometimes. And I know how frustrating that can be. You know, if you've ever really tried to get over something and then you failed, I, I know that it's, it's so discouraging. And I know one of the thoughts that you begin to think in that moment is, you know, if only I were a, a better Christian or even sometimes if only I were really saved, then I would be able to get over this. And I just want to let you know that I think that thought, I think that's a lie from the enemy. Remember how Paul described the Christian life. He described it as a battle. And I think battling is always going to be a part of this life to a certain extent. There are going to be some things that take a lifetime to overcome. And the very fact that we are fighting in it, the very fact that we are engaging in this battle is a sign that we are saved. One scholar puts it this way. He says, the Holy Spirit is absent when we stop fighting, not when we lose. The Holy Spirit is absent when we stop fighting, not when we lose. And I don't know about you, but that brings me comfort. Yes, I'm going to fail sometimes. But the very fact that I'm putting up a fight, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is within me. And so when we fail in these moments, what do we do? We ask for God's forgiveness. We forgive ourselves in those moments because we believe God forgives us. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we get up and we fight another day. And if someone you love is struggling with self-control in an area and they fail, you know what you do? You forgive them because God forgives them. And then you help them get up and you help them fight again. That's what we do. So how do we practice self-control? We ask for God's help and we acknowledge our own responsibility. And then there's one final thing I wanted to say. I, I, I didn't say this last night, but I felt after the service that I really needed to say this. I think one of the things that helps us in this battle of self-control is to realize that what we're gaining when we practice self-control is far better than what we're giving up. What we're gaining when we practice self-control is far better than what we're giving up. A couple months ago, Ann Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, she had an amazing post on her website. And she was talking about, this was right after actually the Winter Olympics, and she was talking about how she was watching the 5,000 meter speed skating race in the Winter Olympics. And the winner of the 5,000 meter speed skating race was a man by the name of Sven Kramer. And Sven is from the Netherlands. And after it was clear that Sven had won the gold medal, the camera panned up to the crowd. She was watching this on TV. The camera panned up to the crowds. And there was a man who was standing to his feet and he was just applauding wildly. He was clapping wildly. And you know who this man was? He was the king of the Netherlands. 
He was the king of the country where Sven was from, and he was praising Sven for bringing home the gold medal. And in this post, Anne applied this to her dad, Billy, who had just passed away, but I want to apply this to all of us because the Bible does. When we stand before Jesus at the end of time, men and women, you know what the Bible says God is going to do for us? He's going to do the same thing that the king of Netherlands did for Sven. In a sense, he is going to stand to his feet. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to reward us. Jesus, it actually says earlier in 1 Corinthians, he's going to praise us for doing what he has asked us to do. The king of the world is going to praise us. You know what that means? Every time that we practice self-control, God recognizes it. And at the end of time, he's he's going to bring it up. He's going to praise us for it. And I promise you, I promise you, the feeling that we're going to get when the king of the world praises us simply for doing what he has asked us to do is going to far outweigh any fleeting satisfaction that overindulgence gives in this life. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that gives me motivation. That what I'm gaining when I practice self-control is far better than what I'm giving up. And that's what leads us to our close here today. As we were thinking about how to close this service today, we thought communion would be a fitting close. And I like communion for a couple of reasons. First of all, it reminds us of the forgiveness of God when we fail. It reminds us of the grace of God. So I like it for that reason. But the other reason I like it is this. You know, communion is so against sort of the trend in the world today. The trend in the world is towards bigger proportions, right? The trend in the world is towards overindulgence. And communion is so small. It's that little piece of cracker and that little what thimble of juice, right? And yet it's so powerful. Because we believe represented in communion is the body and the blood of Jesus. And as we eat the bread and as we drink the juice, it is a reminder that that Jesus Christ lives within us. And it's a reminder that only He can satisfy. And it's a reminder that it's only by Him living within us that we are able to practice this self-control, that we are able to be controlled by the Spirit, controlled by Christ. And it's a powerful representation of what we're talking about here today. So in just a second, the ushers are going to come by. And this weekend, we're going to pass the plates. And so as the plates come by, in the spirit of this message, just take one of each, okay? One bread and one juice, no more than that. And then hold on to it because we're going to take it together as a church. So in just a second, we're going to do that. But as we close, would you do me a favor? Would you just bow your heads with me? And I know I've given you a lot in this message and at the risk of giving you one more thing. um, I did come across this great quote this weekend. And the quote is that the key to self-mastery, the key to self-control, is to be mastered by Christ. It is to be controlled by Christ. And it's with that in mind that I want to pray as we close here. So, Father, we, uh, we thank you for this truth, Lord. And, God, it's, it's, not, it's not the most fun thing in the Christian life, God. Um, but, Father, I, I really do believe that um, when we practice this fruit of the Spirit, it leads to the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John, in the book of John, Father. And, and there's some irony in that, Lord. That it's actually by practicing self-control, it's actually by limiting ourselves. That's what leads to abundance, God. And Father, the only way that we're able to do that uh, is through your son, Jesus. Is through his power over us, God. That, that the more that we learn to deny that flesh within us, Father, the more the Holy Spirit, the more the Spirit of Christ begins to shine through, Lord. 
And the ultimate end of this, Father, is that other people are attracted to you as a result of the way that we've lived. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us to live this out, God. If, if I'm going to take anything overboard, I, I want it to be Jesus, Lord. And I know that's the case for many in this room, Father. And so, God, would you help us to practice this? Would you help us to, to live for, for Jesus and him alone, God? And as we get prepared here to take communion, would that be just a powerful example of the fact that, that you live within us, how close you are to us through your son, Jesus, God. And it's only by his power that we're able to carry this out, Lord. So God, as we head into this final song and as we head into this act of communion, Lord, I, I just pray that there would just be a sense of your presence here in this room, Lord, of, of your grace and you enabling us to do what you've called us to do, Father. We, we just love you so much, Father. We, we thank you so much. Words can't even express that, God. And we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.